0: Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio. This is the Research Roundtable Podcast, where we speak to academics about research conducted at SOAS. In this episode, we'll be listening to academics from the Deepening Democracy Project. Dr. Benjamin Bowles will be conducting the interview. He's a lecturer in social anthropology at SOAS and will be teaching the MA in Global Futures and Sustainability from September. Our panelists from the project are Emma Crewe, Professor in Social Anthropology, Director of the Global Research Network on Parliaments and People, and Chair of the SOAS Academic Senate. She'll be joined by Dr. Richard Axelby, Senior Research Fellow at the Department of Social Anthropology and Sociology. Both are members of SOAS South Asia Institute, and they'll be joined by Beth Werhu-Dix, the Program Manager for the Global Research Network on Parliaments and People.
1: Hello, and welcome to this Research Roundtable for the Global Research Network on Parliaments and People. I'm Ben Bowles. I'm a lecturer in the Anthropology Department, and I have with me Emma Crewe, Richard Axelby, and Beth Werku. Let's introduce ourselves. I'm Emma. I'm a researcher
2: also in the
1: Department uh, for Anthropology and
2: Sociology at SOAS, I'm also Chair of the Committee on Policy and Practice at the Royal Anthropological Institute and Director of the Global Research Network on Parliaments and People.
3: I was the Programme Manager of the Deepening Democracy Programme, working with Emma and Beth from... I started in October 2017 and didn't really know what Programme Manager meant. But luckily I was working with a team of people that did and had much more knowledge and and experience of programme management than I did. On more solid ground, I think my official job title was Research Fellow and my background being in anthropology and specifically the anthropology of development, my job, I suppose, was to reflect on what it meant to be a program manager and how to manage a program of this this kind.
4: Hi, I'm Beth Berku. I am the current program manager of the Parliament's For People program. I was the finance officer previous to that of the program working with Rich and Emma.
1: Well, thank you very much, all three of you, for joining me for what is going to be an introduction for some people to the network and also an evaluation exercise where we can talk about the work that you did and how, it, and how it went. But first of all, some people will not have come across the Global Research Network for Parliaments and People. And so, Emma, I would like you to try to introduce it to us in a sentence, if you can.
2: It's the meeting of the study of parliaments with an interest in
1: the connections between development and democracy. Thank you. I, I, I wasn't sure if we were going to get a one-sentence definition, but that works for me. And um, So where did the original idea come from?
2: Well, like Rich, I have a background in international development, particularly working in NGOs. And I was very aware that a lot of Europeans working in international development don't pay close enough attention to the political worlds within the countries that they work in. I then subsequently got involved in doing research myself in the UK Parliament. And um, it was doing that research and becoming part of a sort of tradition within UK of academics who scrutinize parliament. And I began to realize the value of this and how actually it's really, really useful to a democracy to have academics taking a very, very close look at political world. And so finally, in in, in about 2014, I I got it into my head to sort of bring these two strands together. And with um, Ruth Fox, a colleague at the Hansard Society, we applied for funding to create opportunities for colleagues. Uh, In those days, it was in that project, it was Bangladesh and Ethiopia. So we wanted to create an opportunity for those colleagues to do the kind of work that I'd been doing in in the UK, uh, along with, with many other academics. And that then subsequently turned into this deep Democracy Programme, which was really exciting because it had within it the scope for giving grants. So the Deepening Democracy Programme, it was the first major programme of the GRMPP, and uh, it was funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Global Challenge Research Fund. And because it had a grant-making element we were able not only to just sort of give some funding to colleagues, in this case in Myanmar, Ethiopia, but actually give them a chance to create their own projects. The only conditions we had were that we wanted it to be creative and innovative. And then we we had various themes which which we can tell you about. But what we were really excited about was giving the chance for scholars in the Global South to lead their own research project.
1: That, That is a fascinating feature. And I was wondering if either Beth or Rich would like to say something about how unusual or innovative that particular approach is, this approach of delivering grants directly to these recipients so that they can run projects of their own.
3: The the GCRF Uh, Global Challenges Research Fund Network Plus funding stream program was set up really to allow this sort of approach. So the idea was it was effectively uh, a way of supporting research by partners and and colleagues in DAC listed countries, which is countries in in receipt of overseas development assistance. Um, So this was was a a sort of a model that's been rolled out since I think 2016 were the first round with the aim of, of sort of combining academic research with development assistance.
1: So, how were the countries chosen that were going to be the focus for these uh, for these grants? We chose
2: two countries which are really important to the UK government overseas assistance portfolio, and they were two countries that are described as fragile democracies. But uh, they're also two countries where we knew that there was a, a huge interest in studying democracy. So, some some really talented. Um, scholars, but who had both been really denied the opportunity to do research on their own terms. So, as you know, the kind of normal pattern is that academics in in Europe and, and including in the UK often lead projects and contract scholars in countries like that to essentially be their assistants or maybe to be their colleagues, but in a highly constrained way. But we didn't want to make life easy for ourselves, so we were determined to get beyond the best-known scholars in each country. So when we said we're committed to working in Myanmar and Ethiopia, two incredibly large and diverse places, we were equally committed to getting outside their capitals and beyond the kind of main ethnic, largest ethnic groups, making sure that women got as much of a chance as men and that early career researchers also are able to apply and have a fair chance of getting funding
1: which is against the general patterns that these things work, as you say. But also, I'd imagine that it's hard to get information about places outside of capitals and dominant groups. So do you want to say a little bit more about finding those partners who may have been somewhat more hard to find? There
3: is maybe a a point just following up what Emma said just now about the the hidden agenda that was going on with this, this program. Because from my point of view, and Beth and Emma also, we weren't studying democracy or parliaments or politicians in Ethiopia or Myanmar, uh, we were supporting the study of those things. But in terms of actual research, what we were interested in was looking at at the nature of partnership and the nature of relationships in big international research coalitions like this and the the sort of the constraints on on the forms of relationships, because though the language of partnership is very common, as Emma was saying, you know, often it is the partners in the global global north that get to to define what is to be studied, that have the power to do that, that set the strategic direction of projects. Um, and there are reasons for this, you know, that they might be institutional, they might be the the, the structure of the ways in which we work or funders work, partly it's geographical. Even things like, you know, visa regimes structure these. So we were interested in finding out about the nature of this. This was where our sort of hidden agenda comes in, looking at the relationships, looking at the processes of international partnerships and the way they're shaped by institutional practices and bureaucracies.
2: How did we make sure that... Our opportunity, this funding opportunity, was available to scholars throughout both countries. It took a lot of really hard work. So probably the first thing to say about that is that we chose our main partner organizations in each country with great, great care because it was their responsibility to make sure that they alerted universities and NGOs and research organizations across each country to this opportunity. So we chose partners that were were interested in mentoring and training and providing opportunities to other organizations. So they weren't the kind of really competitive institutes that just want to do research themselves. They were both very outward facing. And together with those partner organizations... We, we literally physically went all over both countries uh, between us. So we were, with the partner organizations, we were quite a large team. And we'd run workshops in different universities. We put advertisements in newspapers. We produced the funding guidelines in as many languages as we could. I mean, both countries have an incredible number of languages. But you know, obviously, it wasn't just enough to translate into Burmese and Amharic. We, we tried to translate into a few other languages as well. But The the really important thing was to give people a chance to interrogate us, and us includes the partners, about what this funding opportunity meant, because it was so unusual to people. They were so perplexed that it was up to them to create their own research idea. And it was quite unusual for many of them to design a project themselves. So our partners, um, particularly in Myanmar, it was the um, Enlightened Myanmar Research Foundation, and in Ethiopia, it was the Forum for Social Studies and SETAWEET. They really made themselves available, partly through workshops, but also at the end of an email on WhatsApp, whatever, whatever, however people would communicate. You know, they went on and on and on explaining what the funding opportunity was, and what the conditions were, and what was involved in both applying for the funding and if they got the money what was expected of them
4: just to add to what emma said we also held for example in ethiopia a couple of workshops before the before even the launch of the grant program to um to kind of help people to have a, a, an audience with us basically and to ask questions about the process and what it means and how they can apply and to kind of help them deal with the practical aspects of it whether it's kind of creating budgets or even just writing the proposals etc so and i think having potential applicants in that in those kind of settings really helped us later and kind of encouraged people from very different backgrounds to feel like they can participate in the in the process of grant application, whether or whether they be successful or not. But that in itself was kind of a, a learning process for them as well. So
1: The idea of reaching different kinds of partners or partners who wouldn't normally be producing these grants has already come up a couple of times. And I noticed from the website that you're talking about social science studies, but also artistic expressions as well. I was wondering if one of you could tell me about how wide the scope was for potential projects. To uh, to be funded through the through the deepening democracy projects.
3: The scope for the overall project was incredibly broad and the applications that came in were a huge variety. And that was you know, something that we absolutely encouraged. And we spent a lot of time explaining what we meant by the study of parliaments and people or the idea of deepening democracy, but also explaining the role of arts and humanities in this type of research, not just as a method for disseminating the results of research, but actually integrating creative visions from the, the inception stage. And that was something that, that made Maybe partly, I mean, we had this was something w- was necessary because our funding came from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And as I say, there were constraints. You know, this wasn't entirely open, but also it wasn't something that, that was necessarily easily understood because of the way universities work, the way university uh, departments are structured. So it's something we spend a lot of time encouraging people to think about how to, how to think creatively about collaboration and bringing different groups of people together into the same room maybe for the first time. So I remember one workshop we did in Addis Ababa where there was a group of musicians and writers speaking to social scientists and political scientists. And out of that, uh, out of that meeting, an actress and film producer, got together with a group of, of political scientists and produced a fantastic film and project, which you can learn more about on our website.
1: Thanks, Rich. And so there's something there about the nature of interdisciplinarity and working across disciplines and boundaries within the university that seemed to create a bit of a barrier. Does, does anybody want to let me know what your findings were around that? You said, Rich, that you found out quite a lot about how these large grants usually work.
3: Yeah. So we, if we were extending this opportunity to academics, but also artists and activists, that was sort of so, so broad. So a very broad topic, uh, the study of parliaments and people and democracy and so on, but also this very broad idea of, you know, of who might be involved and how they might be involved. So all these ideas had, you know, were, were generated by the people we we were encouraging to to apply.
1: Let's cut to Emma and then back to Rich I think because I do want to get at this question of interdisciplinarity and the way that this cuts across traditional boundaries. Emma, I'll leave an edit point for you here.
2: In addition to encouraging scholars to work with creative industries, we were also really encouraging people from different disciplines to work together and we we as anthropologists were often found that that there was a great interest in ethnography. So ethnographies of parliament are a relatively recent phenomena. There were a few in, in the 1980s, but it's only really in the last sort of 15, 20 years that anthropologists have been studying parliaments and I think there's been huge interest in this for two reasons. First of all, the, the disciplines that normally study parliaments that have dominated that space, which tend to be political scientists, historians, legal scholars, often focus on outputs, not on process. And they tend to look either at the individuals who are involved in parliaments or, or political spaces. So they're interested in leaders, or they're interested in people who have particular influence, or they're interested in institutions as a kind of a system or a culture or a structure. And I suppose part of what anthropology brings is a is an intense interest in relationships and in connections and in processes. But we're also interested in in sort of day-to-day lived experience and and actually the point about our network being called the network of global research network on parliaments and people stresses connections so when we described the themes we really encouraged people to look at, at relationships and it meant that actually Politicians often got very interested in our research. So one of the things that some of our grantees were looking at were the relationship between politicians and constituents, for example, which is a really neglected area. Others were looking at, well, what's it actually like to be a politician? So several got really interested in well, what's it like, more specifically, to be a woman politician? Because, you know, women face an even higher level of antagonism from, and hostility from other politicians, but also from the public. There are more barriers to getting on in politics if you're a woman. And so I think by encouraging interdisciplinarity, and we particularly know about ethnography, so you know, we, particularly Rich, ran a lot of workshops about what what's entailed in ethnography. I think it, it stimulated quite a kind of interest in looking at parliament and relationships within the political world in a in a rather different
1: way. Is there a,
3: is there a sense here, though, that the, or a learning point for scholars in the global north? Because you know, we, we, if political scientists do do tend to look at parliaments in terms of the organizational form or, or outputs, that's not necessarily the case in Myanmar or, or Ethiopia, where they have a, an experience of um, of politics uh, which is full of ruptures and dramatic changes. And, and changes over time. So these are lived experiences that people have. And secondly, I think, you know, the, in terms of sort of the engaging and reaching out to a wider set of people in this, to actually talk about the results of your research, to engage with citizens and voters, to explain was something that was central to uh, a lot of the, the, the researchers that we're working with and the artists and academics the need to sort of to talk about how parliament works or where it doesn't work uh, was central to these these projects. It's interesting, a lot of the time, especially in Myanmar, we weren't necessarily working with universities or or people based in universities, we were working with civil society organisations and NGOs, which were very research active, but arguably also had some degree of, of sort of activist orientation to them.
4: Yes, just, just to add to the inter- interdisciplinary discussion that in terms of the grantees, initially when we suggested the integration of arts and humanities, especially the creative element of uh, the creative elements, they there was slightly a bit of challenge perhaps to some of the scholars, particularly in Ethiopia, who are used to doing research in a very particular way. But I think one of the great outcomes of this program in the end is that having tried something different they haven't done before, i.e. kind of getting together with our artists or comics comic book production uh, producers or painters or filmmakers you know things like that they kind of came up with a much better research, whether it's in the, in the method they used or also in the way they distributed their findings, which is, uh, I guess, one of the great outcomes of this program, in my opinion.
1: So the program ended up with this real varied set of outputs. What were the most surprising outputs or forms of communication of findings that, uh, that happened over the course of the project?
2: It's difficult because we've got so many to choose from, but if I could just pick two of my favourites. One was created by an institute in, in Addis, And it was the creation of an online platform, which I think could be of interest to any country in the world. And it's really addressing the problem that elected politicians need to communicate with their constituents in a way that really debates some of the difficult decisions that need to be made within that community or that area. And at the moment, in a way, elected politicians tend to kind of privilege some groups above other groups. It's, it's it's very difficult for them to get into really meaningful debates with their with a broad range of constituents. So they piloted this amazing online platform, which basically sort of moderated discussions between politicians and people within their constituency. They did it particularly with young people. And It was carefully moderated because, as we know, a lot of online and sort of digital platforms can lead to pretty acrimonious and polarized kinds of discussion. But what was really special about this was the quality of the discussions that took place between politicians and citizens, who both, I think, understood a lot more about their respective situation, the kind of difficult decisions and judgments that politicians have to make about what they argue for. You know, what priorities they choose for campaigning on behalf of their constituency. Equally, I think constituents, these these young constituents understood so much more about democracy and and what's entailed, and the difficulty of finding out what a vast and and very diverse population of people need, want or whatever. so that was that was interesting. But uh, an equally interesting one involved a coalition of uh, theatre lecturer. Uh, and filmmaker and a pastoralist from a group of people called the Mercy in Ethiopia. And, and they did research by, uh, through the mechanism of making a film within the, uh, communities of, of Mercy and with a view to turning it into a play. So, it was through film that they both collected quite a lot of the, the data, but also they've now made a beautiful short film, which we will help them use in order to raise funding to turn a lot of the content into a play, which will be shown in the National Theatre in, in Addis Ababa, about how democracy in Ethiopia excludes various groups, including this pastoralist group called the Mercy. But I have a feeling my colleagues have other examples.
1: I think in those two examples, we see the range and breadth of the kinds of outputs that this particular project has. I'm wondering if Rich and Beth have their own favourites.
3: All of them are my favourites. I've I've learned something from every single one of the 46 different projects and grants we funded. And I've learned something different and enjoyed working with the different people. So I, I could highlight any one of those those 46 projects. So the one I'm going to mention now is a project that was run from Chin State, a very remote state, a mountainous state in the west of Myanmar, where, much to our surprise, very early on, one of the first applications we, we received came from Van Kung Lian, who's a young scholar, from Chin State, he grew up in Chin State and founded with his friend Atang a research institute called the Chinbridge Institute, which was, was newly formed in twenty early twenty 20- 18 or late 2017 when they put together this application. I think they'd had one previous project before before they applied to us. So we, we were really happy to and surprised to get an application. We'd, we'd put a lot of work into setting up the programme, so it was lovely to get our first applications. But it was really interesting to see because though they had really good ideas for what they wanted to study, they didn't necessarily work out some of the back-end stuff, the more technical stuff such as budgets. So with members of the of the team uh, and especially with, with Beth working on the budget, we went through several iterations of our application, and eventually it was panel that makes decisions on which projects to fund agreed that it was an excellent application. It was a relatively small amount of money, but a massive, massive amount of research that went into it, and it just showed you know, what could be done for a small amount of money by a group of people that were the first people in Chin State working for a Chin-founded uh, research institute to do research in Chin State on um, the engagements of of Chin people with politicians. They spent a couple of months basically going all around the state, all the different parts of the state, during the monsoon season, so not the easiest time to travel. It's a very mountainous uh, state. The roads are terrible. But they went around, they did these amazing focus group discussions and workshops and produced out of this. Initially, the initial finding was a report. The report was... So successful it was um, translated and sent to the Burmese Parliament. They then went on, and this sort of shows our approach that we we didn't see this as a one-off thing, but as an evolving relationship. We they followed up with a second um, request for funding to produce cartoons illustrating some of the themes of the report. So in other words, this is this has kept going, and you know we see them very much as as. as as good friends, but also good colleagues. And um, we've worked very closely with them over these last few years. So that is one of, of many I could have mentioned. I'm sure Beth has some as well.
4: Yes, I think it's quite difficult to pick one, to be honest, because we work so closely with all our grantees. And in a way, they kind of become kind of, we have a special bond with, with, with all of them. But my the, the one that comes to mind now is this Project we have in uh, in the Mon state with Just Do, a grassroots CSO organization who are who's who are looking at women participation in political spaces. And Just Do has uh, this person who used to work with them. He's a medical doctor actually, but he happens to also be uh, a creative sort and does cartoons and drawings. And the PI in the in the organization, uh, Cherry Shu she really wanted to work with him very closely so she took him around to all her interviews when she was doing field work etc where he sat down and kind of absorbed all the information and then went away and drew all these really interesting uh, drawings about what he learned. And they were actually used for, they, they blew them up uh, into a big, big board, billboard billboards around the country. And they, they were used and displayed during the November election as well as part of, you know, more highlighting the problems that women face when they go to the kind of try to participate in political process. So that's really, that was a very interesting project because of the way they combine the creative element with the, with the research and but the way they work very closely with each other as well, as well was very, very um, a good example.
3: Yeah, it is a, it's a really nice example, the Just Two Project, because, I mean, like you say, it was a really rigorous piece of research and lots of interviews and the, the, the way that the arts were integrated into that. So, you know, the the, the the drawings were done at the same time as the interview was taking place. But also, yeah, the way was disseminated, the billboards, but also um, uh, I think some of them were printed out and taken in, in a truck uh, to some of the more remote villages in the state where they had... Uh, discussions with women's groups and also with men about the barriers to women entering parliament or entering politics, being representatives and and trying to to initiate discussions and encourage people to become more involved. And I just think it shows that, you know, it's not just about uh, the research. It's also about what it, you know, what the the, the outputs of that are and how we communicate our research.
1: I think that that's a really profound point that uh, an artistic kind of output that you've already talked about, some disciplines, some some scholars maybe, be a little snooty potentially about artistic outputs have this real impact and can have surprising afterlives and do uh, do really interesting things on the ground. I also am really interested in your idea, Rich, of evolving relationships. This project has gone on for quite a while and you must have seen some surprising and unexpected changes within the relationships in uh, in the field over that time. Emma, have you got something to add to Rich and Beth's comments?
2: I think we, we, we've all got probably a lot to say about relationships within our own coalition. We were all kind of responsible for different aspects. And we had to work very, very closely as a team with another colleague as well, Jazz Kerr, who was communications officer, because we were all focusing on a different aspect of, of relationships. But... I wanted to just make a connection with this interdisciplinarity, though, because one of the important things about relationships, I think, is if you make them really interesting and if you set relationships up in the first place so that you really feel like you're learning from each other and being endlessly surprised, then you can get to a much kind of more intense motivation. And so I think what was fascinating about this project was all these grant holders threw as much kind of energy and passion and determination into their projects as we did from from our side. And I think that was partly because they felt that they were really genuinely their projects. They had control over the content. But secondly, they got into these really interesting relationships with each other. So for example, there there was some political scientists who were used to working in a relatively conventional way on questions about what goes on with Parliament. But they teamed up with a filmmaker who had this very, very strong view about how democracy begins in the family. So she wasn't just taking their findings and then producing a film out of them. She was actually with them looking at what democracy is all about. So the film became partly an articulation of their views, the political scientists, but also her own views as well. And she, they made this lovely film together, which is about how it's about conflict within the family and how that shows up in, in on a broader canvas within democracy. But the the relationships between us and our partners and our grantees, getting those relationships set up in such a way that they were intensely respectful and collaborative was probably the most important aspect of making this project work, I'd say. But my colleagues can explain more about that because it's kind of easy to say in the abstract, but what does that actually mean? Because it meant really hard work and attention to extraordinary amount of detail.
1: I was going to ask about that because of this... Potentially relatively unusual structure. This nested structure of you being very reliant, as you've described it, on your partners to not just find people but to advocate the project, to to actively go and commission work in a way. This strikes me as something that requires a lot of trust and understanding. And you you said um, respect and uh, respectful and collaborative relationships. There, how? Exactly. Do you build that sort of environment? I guess this may be something that indeed one of your colleagues may want to uh, want to talk about. Uh, what are the barriers to that sort of environment in research?
3: It feels slightly odd talking about these things because, you know, unusually we don't have one of our partners involved in this discussion. We we have always tried, if they're available, to do that. But somewhat difficult moment in both Ethiopia and Myanmar, that's not possible. It, yeah, the, the absolutely, Setawit in, in Ethiopia devised very... Innovative ways of, of reaching out. One of the, the things we noticed that we, we held a series of workshops right at the beginning of the project, and uh, we noticed that most—I mean, the vast majority of people coming to these workshops were men, and that was reflected, reflective of the the sort of the way that academia is is structured and academic departments in in Ethiopia are structured. So Emma had the genius idea of of arranging a partnership with a fantastic organization called Setawit, which is Ethiopia's sort of first radical feminist organization, who Opinion had some great ideas for for encouraging and supporting people to apply for these grants, such as, I mean, as well as workshops, but also arranging sort of life coaching sessions uh, to talk about the difficulties of of, of balancing family and and work or professional lives, which are things that often men don't think about or or aren't expected to think about. And some of the um, the projects that came out of that, we ring-fenced some funds specifically for, for women scholars in Ethiopia because there was such an imbalance in the applications we were having. Out of the projects that were, that were encouraged by SETA, we, we got a huge range of different uh, proposals and awarded a number of different grants looking at a range of, of, of different subjects, whether that was a historical review of, of women's involvement in political struggles in Ethiopia, or looking at the gendered experience of violence, or looking at legislation that was to prevent um, child marriage and the success of how this legislation had been translated into practice. But it was always about the way, you know, the, the partner organisations, whether the MRF and Myanmar, Satoit in Ethiopia would reach out to people. I would also mention, though, I think one of the other big factors we noticed was if there was one grant awarded to uh, a place, it would we would then see a huge amount of other people applying from that same place. So in other words, just giving one grant would inspire other people. And I think one of the initial barriers was that people didn't think these grants were available to them. You know, and that was something we heard a lot during feedback that people would say, yeah, we didn't apply because we didn't think we'd get it or it wasn't worth it. Or, you know, we assumed that this would go to someone in one of the big universities, elite universities in Yangon or Addis or Michele. So I think the importance of actually, you know, of the symbolic importance, actually, of those early uh, applications we received from places like Asosa in the in the far west of Ethiopia, or Mon state or, or, or Kachin state in, in Myanmar. Really made a difference for for what followed.
4: Just to add to to your uh, question about the how to how we built the uh, respectful and flexible partnerships with our partners and with our grantees. I think yes. I mean, initially the grantees we might have they might have come to us through our partners or heard um, from the advertisements we put out about the grants. But once, I think the hard work of building that kind of partnership with the the grantees starts after the award, basically. And I think we made a point of investing ourselves into being flexible and make it a learning environment, not just for them, but for us as well. So that the more we learn about how they work, the more we can be of assistance to them and are of use to to what they can achieve and can be encouraging. And I think we invested a lot of time in understanding what their potential was. And instead of assuming the the capacity, we we kind of made a point of making capacity building at at the as a priority for us as well. Wherever, for example, wherever there is no guidance documents in a in a in a grantee organization or in a host organization. Uh, hosting the grant, we would go out of our way to kind of help them build those kind of processes into into place or where they're having issues with putting a budget together. We would spend a lot of time kind of helping them put a budget together. So I think kind of, when once they kind of start to understand that our approach to the grant making process and to the award, I mean, even to the management of the grant, grants themselves are quite different from the usual funder uh, approach that are usually out there where we are always you know kind of holding their hands whenever needed really i think that kind of helps to build trust in a lot of ways and that kind of benefits later on with how the relationship develops
3: i think it's a point that needs to be made that um a lot of scholars in uh, universities in in the uk or europe or the north or north america don't realize how lucky They are, you know, they they will put in an application for a grant, but they will be supported in doing so by their institution. And they'll have a huge amount of input there. And that doesn't necessarily exist um, for people in, uh, in Ethiopia or Myanmar. And I think a lot of what Beth and I were doing was working out you know what was appropriate in what places. Often I think with partnership the reason people will use similar universities or similar institutions is they were looking for something that mirrors their own institution in the global north you know that has the sort of the ethics policies or research policies and can can sort of show how the grant will be managed but what you know what's appropriate in universities in the UK or in North America or Europe is not necessarily what you'll find on the ground in Myanmar or Ethiopia. So we, you know, we were, as I said, we were keen um, to encourage um, applications from people, you know, outside of those 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 normal circles, the usual suspects. But that did mean a lot of work for Beth and I, and uh, as I say, forty six different grants, but in a way, forty six uh, different projects that had to be set up from from the start. So we had to learn about who we were. We were. Um, working with, who the grant had been awarded to.
1: This is really important, the idea that you ended up having to work out what was required in each of these relationships and create a kind of bespoke approach. I also think that the idea that once there was a model, once people could see that this grant was for the likes of them and was available in their areas and in their, their disciplines, I like the idea that that created this further growth. I do, however, not want to let you off the hook in a way with... Ten minutes still to go. I think that the point of evaluation has to has to be yes. I'm sure that there were fantastic collabor- collaborations and relationships that deepened, but there must have been real emergent challenges. I'm thinking, of course, about the political challenges in both of these countries that are that are ongoing. But beyond that, what are their regrets or misconnections or things that you really do wish that you would have uh, would have done differently? Had you been at, back in 2017 and at the start of this journey? Journey. Again, this is something that I would like to like to hear from from you about in the last few minutes that we have.
2: Yes, I, I would like to underline the intensity that was involved in this work I, because I don't want to give the impression that this was easy. Because this process of avoiding standardisation, where Beth in particular had to tailor every single relationship between us and the partner or us and the partner and the grantee and there were often you know a lot of people involved in every single grant the 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 way in which we we all uh, agreed that each relationship had to be tailored meant she had so much more work to do than she would if she took a very standardized approach so if she just standardized in a sense what she would have forced was the grantees to do all the work. But because she was flexible, for example, about exactly how we did the transfers, about how we did the due diligence, how we set up the the relationship between the host organization and the grants and the grantees, how they reported, how much we tolerated delays, all the kind of minute detail of grant making. Effectively, Beth had to do so much more work than, than um, uh, the kind of grant maker that tries to make its life very easy for itself. And because she was tailoring it and because Rich was doing something similar, but more on the kind of mentoring side and giving support and, and finding out about things in conjunction with partners, the result of all this work was, in a way, we didn't have that many surprises. And, you know, so, for example, on things like, you know, reconciling the money, I mean, we have, with the exception of a couple of grantees who are who already are struggling because they're, they've they been displaced due to Conflict. we have receipts for every single penny that's been spent so we are really really serious about doing the financial monitoring not just about the intellectual content of the research so we we don't have we don't have any I don't look back and think oh my goodness we were really shocked about you know what happened in that relationship we were we have been of course really taken aback by some of the, the the political difficulties that have happened in both countries we were fairly well prepared in in some senses but i think it's a real credit to both beth and rich that the regularity with which they communicated with people meant that even when there were difficulties or even sometimes disagreements we could we managed to overcome them so if there are regrets or, you know, we look back and we think, oh, gosh, maybe maybe we could have found a solution quicker. Um, they're really not that
1: major. Beth, would you like to reflect on that relationship, that tailoring of support and the challenges there?
4: I mean, as, as Emma said, yeah, we did make things quite difficult for ourselves by choosing a hard way of being extremely flexible and tackling each challenge as it comes and kind of being realistic about what people can do and cannot do and then kind of meeting that that standard, but I think if there was any regret from my end, it would it wouldn't be necessarily in our relationship with our grantees or partners. I think it would be actually within the institution within SOAS. I think we would ha- we could have done some things differently, as in to make partnership projects such as ours work a lot more smoothly and a lot more efficiently. And I think that is you know something we kind of perhaps need to look into because a project like ours a program like ours needs a lot of transfers for example to to these two countries and that can be quite difficult for finance if they don't have enough people to do the transfers maybe some kind of you know arrangements that are particularly uh, useful for large programs in soas would really be kind of useful to, to put together i think um so i think that's my when i look back that's what i feel like we should have you know some kind of different process or mechanism where, whereby things are made easier for big, complicated pro- projects, research projects within us. But in terms of the partners and the grantees, I think they're very appreciative of the way we forged our relationship with them, even though it means a lot of work for us. But it also, as Emma says, results in In a way, we don't have any big missteps or misspent money or, you know, mismanaged relationships. And I think that's quite I I can't I can't believe we don't have any huge Issues when I look back, because that could be something that could easily happen in in that complex setup that we we have with them.
1: In that way, it's a fascinating study in complexity and in uh, and in how hard it is to to create individual projects out of something much large uh, larger out of a much larger uh, larger umbrella. And uh, a really, I think, novel and fascinating approach to interdisciplinarity and the democratization of of process down in, uh, down the chain in a, in a bit like this. I think that is truly fascinating. And so we have a little bit of time to ask those big questions. What are the lessons for big and complicated projects? What are the institutional lessons? I'm not sure if Richard, if you wanted to talk about that or something else, but the floor is yours.
3: Uh, add on a point, which maybe is the, the lesson when, when I joined the project, Emma explained to me it was uh, it was going to be complex and messy, but Beth has always maintained it's a smoothly functioning, well-oiled machine. And I think, in a way, it, it, those two sides of, of the project are both really important. We did put a lot of, of effort in. We, we, we spent a lot of time establishing relationships and understanding the context in which people worked but that really paid off so the hard work at the beginning pays off at the end because if you don't understand those things you don't know you don't understand why things are going wrong or why people are struggling to report certain items of expenditure unless they've been able to ex- uh, explain it to you and also we found even you know there, there was one case where um, one researcher we on meeting her realized that she, she said she was I, I realized just what danger she was putting herself in to do the research there'd been a change in the the political context from uh, the time she had done the application but because she felt she was committed to doing it because she'd been awarded this grant uh she she continued with that, and we had a really you know good discussion about it and worked out that actually there were different ways of doing it in different places and she didn't realize that you know that we would be able to be flexible like that and I think that's maybe one of the big understandings um that that we have this idea about flexibility because I think Beth and I have always worked as sort of brokers. And, and to some degree translators. On one side, brokering with the, the grant holders and the researchers, but also um, translating what they're doing back to our funders to make sure that it's appropriate, that it sticks within the rules while being flexible enough uh, to allow people to work within uh, very different contexts and very different countries. So that perhaps is the biggest learning, is if you're looking at the inequalities in international research coalitions, look for where the capacity to be flexible is, where the capacity to challenge hierarchies or ch- challenge uh, ways of working, where you can challenge, you know, these ideas about who has the capacity to adjust, who has the capacity to respond and be flexible and adapt to context. That was something we could do. But actually, that's something that should be vested in in uh, research partners and colleagues in countries like Myanmar and, and Ethiopia and across the global south.
1: Flexibility and adaptability as being the lessons. Beth?
4: I think uh, we were also not afraid to try new things. And I think that's one of the strengths of our program in a way. For example, with our monitoring and evaluation, we wanted to do an ethnographic approach rather than the usual monitoring and evaluation systems. So I think the ability to, to try new things within, within programs, if you see that they are beneficial learning processes for, bo- for all parties. Included, I think that's a good lesson as well. Also, we were really never afraid of disagreeing with each other's approach and that kind of having discussion, like open discussion about what we think we should do within the team and then building and together new approaches. I think that that was kind of a trademark of our program, I would say. And I think it would be beneficial for other programs to kind of approach it that way as well.
2: I just want to add to the value of disagreement. Obviously, you don't kind of set out as a matter of principle that your program runs on, a, on the need for disagreement. But I think disagreement is natural between humans because difference between us is uh, an, an inevitable facet of working together. So you're in a team of people. We each have our own different uh, histories and backgrounds and expertise and so forth. So you need to start with the premise that you're all experts of something or other. And you need to start with the assumption that everybody is knowledgeable, but in different ways. So no one person has got the right answer. So to get to, as Beth was saying with the question well how do we make monitoring and evaluation and learning interesting in this program we really agonized about this because the conventional way to do it is to look at your objectives collect data which proves that you've met your objectives or not and then you know you've got your your sort of evaluation results we were clear that we didn't really just want to look at what we'd originally intended to do we wanted to see what had happened irrespective of what we originally planned but how we going to do this in a way that was going to be credible to our donors and recognizable to them, but also rigorous? Well, one of the things we realized after many disagreements with each other about how to do it was that we should embrace The very plural perspectives from this coalition of really thousands of people in the end about what had happened. Even what has happened in this program is a really complex research question. So, what we did is, as Beth says, we collected through very, very many methods, but including visit reports, through WhatsApp exchanges, emails, telephone calls, a survey monkey, all kinds of methods. We collected loads and loads of information, but as we collected it, we kept particularly the SOAS team, kept sort of expressing disagreement and commenting on the data. So you know where we've got agreement, we've produced a policy brief, for example, about what we've learned about pol- partnerships, and we've all authored that. So it's an expression of a kind of shared view on partnerships. But with many of the stories that can never probably be told, because in a way, you have to respect confidentiality to some extent, that there will always be slightly different takes on exactly what happened and why in, in particular programs. So rather than pretending that we see the world all in an identical way, we created a way of doing ethnographic monitoring and evaluation that actually embraced the disagreement and, and the differences between us and created a, a really interesting inquiry, which we all got so excited about that you know, we were all rushing to all these kind of logs and bits of data to comment and express disagreement with each other. And I think it, it makes a, for a much more interesting way of doing evaluation because it means you feel like you're learning rather than just policing each other.
1: Well, thank you very much, Emma. Thank you for making me part of your ethnographic approach to evaluation. I feel that I've thoroughly thoroughly been brought into the process. Rich, would you like to uh, end things for us and also tell us where we can go to find out more about uh, the project in general?
3: Yeah, just um, just following up what Emma was saying about monitoring, evaluation and learning. And and when I came into that, those discussions about monitoring and evaluation, it did scare me a bit because I didn't like the idea of being a monitor or evaluator, but I did like the idea of learning and there have been massive learnings from this and partly that's to do with the, the the sort of the more ethnographic approach to evaluation and learning that we took you know that we're looking for the emergent for the unplanned for the the more intangible or hard to measure sorts of, of outcomes from the projects and, and not sort of confining things to what was predicted in the application and whether they checklist approach for whether they were able to deliver those because things change so yeah I, I also think that you know we'll see further changes down the line to to do this as a three-year project and then stop it. Well, I'm hoping we'll have opportunities to go beyond that. And I know relationships we've established um, over this time will continue. So I really think that's very important. So to sort of place mutual learning over and above conventional approaches that are more about documenting and sort of evaluating success and failure as a a binary. We had both success and failure and somewhere in between.
1: Thank you, Rich. And so where do we see some of those outputs and found out a little bit more about the project in Oh, general. we have
3: our fabulous website which at the grmpp.org. You would know more about that there, because I think you
4: yeah, there's, uh, it's grmpp.org. We have all the grants and the the projects from the grantees uh, in there as well, and some more some more information about uh, outputs as well, individual outputs that came out of the the grants, which will be really fascinating. You can see the films and you know clips of other creative work as well. So yeah, do visit the uh, the website grmpp.org
3: and our Twitter feed as well at grmpp one. Where we highlight some of the the outcomes um, as they're produced.
1: Well, with so many of these fascinating-sounding grants that you ended up awarding, it really does sound like you could uh, that everybody who's listening should go and spend some time on the website, have a look at what was produced here by the scholars and the artists as part of this project. And now, all that I've uh, all that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much to Beth, to Richard, and to Emma for your time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Thank
4: you. Uh,
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Seras Research Roundtable. To find out more, check out the links in the description. And for other episodes, check out the SoundCloud playlist.